Joe, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate uh, it. Absolutely. Um, you are day one or pre-day one of the tour, right? So tomorrow's show number one after this yeah. entire wait. I'm either at day zero or negative one. I think technically, mathematically, I'm at day zero. So tomorrow's uh, day one. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Mathematician, I'm not. So <laughs> I'm just going by like, subtra- I'm using my subtraction skills, which are yeah. <laughs> nary at best. Yeah. I'm with you, but it's got to be a good feeling to finally go do this again. I mean, did you guys have any other shows over the summer or uh, anywhere else? Or is this the first I one? I haven't been on tour in probably nearly two years. I'm going to, I might be uh, overextending that a little, maybe a year and a half, but I mean, it's Holy been shit. the pandemic plus I'd have to go look on a calendar or a website to find out <laughs> yeah. the last yeah. tour we finished. But yeah, probably nearly two years since I played a show. Uh, oh man. Are you, are, yeah. are you nervous? I mean, I, I, it's, I think it's just like one of those, like, it's not just a show. It's also like, this thing is still out there. There's still people that are unvaccinated. It's like it's like it's a large amount of people coming to a a large event. Oh, I mean, there's you know, listen, anyone that thinks we're out of the woods on this virus is um, a moron. And I'm yeah. sorry if I'm calling somebody who's listening to this a moron. I'm sure you're smart in many other ways, but regarding science and uh, public health, you're an idiot. Because yeah, this is. I'm very scared. Uh, I mean, the Delta variant. It's aggressive and it's real and it's killing unvaccinated people and it's still getting vaccinated people sick. Our whole tour is vaccinated. We have nearly draconian rules about coming backstage. Like you have to have a vaccination card um, to hang out backstage. Um, Yeah, I don't think we're doing meet and greets and things like that. Um, It's just not safe to do. So on that side, I'm nervous. Um, On the positive side, (laughs) I'm, uh, (laughs) you know, we've been rehearsing. Well, we did rehearsals in in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, at the Box Center. Um, that those were just for Fall Out Boy, just to like get our production going. And then we've been doing rehearsals here at um, whatever this stadium is called. I'm not a baseball guy, so I'll tell you the, the name of the stadium: the Globe Life Field. We, okay, we did, that is. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so we we've been doing yeah I I just had to go to my calendar for that um, yeah no fair enough <laughs> my ma- master tour for anyone who's listening that doesn't know that's a big uh, it's an application that we touring people use when, to when I was when I when yeah. I was a short lived tour manager that was the only thing that was my bible I um it is yeah, I used master yeah. tour uh, but at the time it was basically beta this is like 2011 2012 and it was not a great product then but it still was better than anything else out there it was a bad app ten years ago it's 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 just smoother. It doesn't look any different. It's the same. Got it. The same, you know, uh, arrangement and such. But it, it just it just doesn't glitch as much as it used to. It used to be nasty. Um, yep. But yeah, so we rehearsed. You know, on the stage we're going to play tomorrow. And you know, we've done a lot of big shows. We've never done a stadium tour. This is our first time doing a tour that's just baseball stadiums. Um, and it's exciting, like to go and you know. Um, yeah, I mean that part is exciting, and I was talking um to one of my best friends, uh, comedian and sometimes metal comedy metal musician Brian Posehn, and he's been doing stand up for fucking ever since like the late eighties. You know, I and, I love and, I love Brian. I saw him the first time with Patton Oswalt in. 2000, 2001 in Athens, Georgia. I went to go, there you see, go. Yeah. see Patton you're long and, and Brian crushed it. Yeah. Yeah. It. I mean, they're both, in, they're both masters, but like Brian was telling me, you know, he's starting to do stand up again. And he was like, 
man, do you still get nervous before you go out and play, like perform? And I'm like, I do. He's like, oh, okay, that makes me feel better. And I'm like, yeah, I feel like if you don't, then you're not excited. Like, then you totally. don't care. If you go out and you feel nothing, you're basically just, if you're a sociopath when it comes to <laughs> performing, you're just like, like, even like on my worst days where I, I didn't want to tour, didn't feel like doing yeah. the band anymore, hit my like, you know, I've, I'm a clinically depressed person, so I have my days that are, you know, mood disorder and not so great and maybe not rational. I still get this like bug, this you know, b- butterfly, uh, butterfly E, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, sense of anxiety before going on stage. And I think that means I care. So, yeah, I mean, and, and, the- and, with, and with this one, this is. This is on a more double. Uh, more massive, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say scale. like, if you don't get those feelings, why even fucking do it? Honestly, if you don't totally. get those butterflies, why even do it? You sociopath, just stay home. Well, maybe, unless it's for, <laughs> I guess, unless it's for a good paycheck, then maybe you're doing it for fiscal reasons. But um, hopefully, it's not why you're sure. doing the thing for money. Hopefully, it's not just for money. I mean, I it's not. Why sh- I was gonna say shame on the people that gave you the first paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> who made? Yeah, who made turned it into a career for you? Fuck yeah, them, yeah. Man. Fuck yeah. those assholes. Those generous assholes. <laughs> yeah, I, I was. I was. I thought it was funny when um, people would get mad at a band for being famous and successful. I'm like, <laughs> you do realize it's not the band's fault. There's a lot of shitty music out there. People make bad music all day, every day. It's actually if you're mad at the band, don't be. It's the fans. Somebody had to like it. And then they had to spread it. So you can't be mad at the band. You got to be, you got to be upset at the people that are consuming this. I don't think ever be upset. I think, you know, Henry Rollins had a series of of shows. He had one on, it might might have been a show on IFC or something that I was watching. And he had this little interstitial moment where he talked about your favorite band that was your band. And was like, no one else's band. It felt like it was yours. And then one day you hear your favorite band's music and like, you know, a fucking Nissan commercial and you're mad. You're like, it's, they sold out. Fuck them. And what you should really be thinking is good for them. They worked really hard. They've been grinding, losing money. Their relationships at home have been faltering. They've been suffering for their art. And finally they're getting paid. (laughs) You should be happy for them. (laughs) You know, um, now no one needs to feel bad for fallout boy. We've been doing fine for a long time, but I, I just always liked that kind of, um, clarity that he brought to the conversation i i couldn't agree more man i i, I remember watching this early uh metallica documentary and not early but like maybe early 2000s and jason mm-hmm. newstead said fans come up to us and they're mad at us because we cut our hair and we made a, ra- a record that has some radio singles and he's like what are you a bunch of fucking sellouts he's like yeah we sell out every right seat in the house every night yeah, yeah i remember yeah. that thing i mean yeah listen it's not like most you know most of your, you know, at any band, like real band that started in their parents' basement and played the local shows and did the grind and, and became big through all that hard work, they didn't get, they, no one gave them a golden ticket. It's a very hard job to get. You know, I think the entertainment business in general, whether it's music, television, film, whatever it is, it's a less than 1% success rate. So anyone that does make it, like it or not, worked for it. You know, nobody said, Nobody Lou Perlman them into the uh, business and was like, here you go. I have this, you know, I put these things together. Uh, I have this massive like corporate deal going on. I'm going to make you stars. Here you go. Here's a paycheck. <laughs> now. No one does. You know, no one. And that's the thing. No. I think people who came up with us and know us from like back in the day know that we were like a bunch of punk rock and hardcore kids that were doing punk and hardcore bands. Then we started Fall Out Boy. And then we did the thing just like our, our hardcore bands. We played small clubs. We played people's basements. We slept on 
floors with cat shit on them, all sorts of stuff to get to this point, you know, it was, yep. you know, we've been a band now for 20 years. <laughs> I'm nearly, I'll be 37 on this tour. And we started this band when I was 17. So on this tour, I will hit the 20 year mark with this band. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. yeah. So you and I are nearly the same age. Wow. So yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I was going to say just dude, Joe, tell me about you, man. Like I was going to, I know you're 20 years in <coughs> with the band, but like, and I know that you guys started off in like the punk hardcore scene, but um, the, the, the toughest thing that I found, I was in a band for a long time coming up during that same time period. We had basically little to no success compared to you guys, but um, I, I know how hard it is to um, live in a van, sleep on cat shit, ridden floors, eat ramen noodles, get in fights over the dumbest shit. Uh, just, just constant, just there's just like feast or famine. There's not a whole lot to go on other than this dream and this idea that someday somebody's going to give a shit more than they do now, somehow. Yeah. And you just keep charging forward and the music drives it the whole time. At least for me, it did. It always um, should. But yeah, like t- tell me about like that struggle for you, man. Cause to me, that's the most compelling part. And a lot of people that listen to this, they, they just really love to know, like, you know, it's not instant. It's not fucking instant. This thing is never instant. It's the long haul. And if you know that going in and you're willing to, understand this is a long game this is not a like you said a lou pearlman american idol moment where it's just right. boom here it goes um then i think it gives people hope to to hear these these types of stories and just understand sure yeah and like just going back to the whole lou pearlman and american idol and all that stuff i'm not saying those people didn't have their own individual struggles prior to getting into this you know situation that was kind of more of a fast track sure. to success and i'm not saying their experiences aren't fucked up also. I'm just, you know, or as valid, far as, right. Yeah, yeah. Or valid. No, no, I don't want to take it. You know, I'm not going to be the kind of guy that's like, fuck them. They had it easy. And I had it hard. <laughs> Everyone has struggles. They're all different. Everyone has them myopically. Everyone has them. Uh, I think everyone has relatable struggles, etc. But I'll say this from my <clears throat> perspective. I think everybody respects a band more when they know they started from the bottom and we definitely started from the bottom. We're not poor kids. You know, we all came from like middle and upper class middle uh, or upper middle class homes. Um, so we had you know, pretty supportive families overall. Even like, you know, I was. So, yeah. So 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 before Fall Out Boy, <clears throat> I had moved from rural Ohio to the suburbs of Chicago, which was quite welcome because I went from a, a place where um, we were the only Jewish family and everyone liked to let us know that to the suburbs of a major city where I didn't have to get that. I didn't, you know, didn't have to get a anti-Semitic kid. Were you in Amish country or were you like outside Cincinnati or Dayton out, or what part like, of it? About an hour or so outside of Cleveland, um, okay. a place called South Russell. And, um, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, people weren't super into Jews. Well, you know, what else is new? That's like every <laughs> the story of many, it's a story of many people, many many situations. But anyway, we get to the suburbs of Chicago, and it's um, still primarily uh, WASPy, but still there's Jews and there's there's some other stuff, and it's at least got that yeah. Chicago. Hey, we're a, a large city culturally. Uh, you know, yes, it's a segregated <laughs> city, but whatever. Didn't learn all that stuff till a little later. But so I moved there around eleven. And then I got into – I was already, like, into punk rock and stuff. I had a friend that uh, in Ohio that got me into, like, everything from, like, quicksand to Black Flag. So I was already interested in punk rock and interested in hardcore and noise rock and all that stuff. Yeah. And I eventually um, realized 
maybe a year, maybe like a year into my freshman year of high school that, oh, I wasn't going to find any like-minded people at the school. So I started taking the, the L, the elevated trains into the city, mm. which my parents would just, well, my mother more than my father, because she called the shots, but she wasn't necessarily like a mentally well person. Yeah, she still called the shots. So she's like, sure, young teenager, go into the city. <laughs> so yeah. I'd go into the city, I'd go to shows at the Fireside Bowl in Chicago, which was the CBGBs of Chicago. It was yep. a kind of defunct bowling alley that now has been turned back into a bowling alley and there are no shows there anymore to my Aww. knowledge. Yeah, it, it's sad, but at least it's still there. They didn't tear it down and turn it into like a John Varvato store. But anyway, <laughs> so um, not that, you know, we could talk about that, but anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll stay on our, Varvato's for now. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, 14, 15, I'm going to shows in Chicago and I'm, and I'm finding all these people, they're six plus years older than me. So in their early 20s, but they just took me in didn't so much treat me like as a kid as they did like a peer, which is really cool. And that's mm-hmm. how I eventually met uh, Pete uh, in Fall Out Boy. But he was in a bunch of hardcore bands. And it basically, without uh, going into the weeds, um, people found out like I could sort of play like instruments okay. And when his hardcore band, Arma Angelus, was going on a, a – it's kind of like a, like, a, like an East Coast tour uh, and their bass player couldn't make it. Uh, he was like, can you do it? And I was like, well, I'd love to. And I was 15. You know, I'm still in high school. And I was like, well, you have to talk to my parents. <laughs> so sure. He calls, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he's a very charismatic and convincing guy. So he calls my my parents and convinces my mom. And, you know, I'm a parent now. I have two young kids. I would never let that happen. But again, my mother wasn't. I was going to say, your mom's like, take the train on the whole tour. Just take Right. The- <laughs> like, yeah, my, my, my mother was, again, like, you know, you know. <sighs> Rest her soul. Um, she's just not a mentally well person, man. But she also called the shots. So she let me go. Uh, and I experienced some pretty exciting and fucked up things on that tour. That was my first time touring at 15. And um, from there, you know, Pete and I forged a, a closer relationship. And that band, after that tour, is kind of on the way out, you know, as many hardcore bands are. They're short lived, you know, <laughs> there's <Yep>. no money. <laughs> um, yep. That falls apart. Um, and, you know, over the course of the next couple of years, um, we both felt that, like, the hardcore scene in Chicago had just um, – and I don't think it's this way anymore. It just felt at the time that it was, like, leaning into some 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 of that kind of uh, – what what was once felt as, like, the New York City kind of, like, thuggy mm-hmm. mentality. Um, it was really – that was kind of the vibe, and it just felt very negative and, and very aggressive and – um, we'd also, we'd been in our fair share of fights and stuff like that. And I think we wanted out of that negative environment. I don't think the scene's like that anymore, but, and, and I, I love the Chicago hardcore scene. I, I no ill will. I've, it gave me, uh, it, it gave me it every, was, it gave me everything, honestly. And I still have so many friends from there. I love all of them. Nothing but positive feelings. But so we, we stopped doing that. Um, and, uh, we decided to start a pop punk band cause it seemed yeah. more positive positive. And then we started Fall Out Boy, and we toured with Fall Out Boy in the same way that we did with our hardcore bands. We had a cargo – we used the old cargo van that belonged to Arma Angelus. Again, just only two windows, no back seats. We used uh, road cases and, amplif- and, and, and uh, amp cabinets as seats. Like, we put blankets over them. There was, like, yep. no AC. The brakes eventually went out. So we'd have to, like, figure out ways to slow the van down. From there, we went to an eight-passenger van towing a trailer. It couldn't, like – 
tow, so the air conditioning broke. So we drive oh. through like Arizona and Southern California, which is like the heat blasting, but it was at least air, you know, with the windows down. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, like we got in fights, we slept on you know all sorts of different types of animal shit floors, and. Um, <laughs> We saw really screwed up things, and yep, maybe yep. we did some screwed up things as well. It's hard to remember everything, but, you know, and for a long time, like, the only thing that kept us going is that people liked us, like, fans of music liked us. Because the industry had zero interest in us. It was really hard for us to get, like, a record label interested. It was really hard for, for us to get people to, interested in managing us. We were not like the the cool thing. We had a so really what, hard time. What, what year was this? Like two thousand two, two thousand three, two thousand four. It's like two thousand around, around two thousand three. Um, who who were some of the bands um, for people listening? Like that you were touring with at the time that might be recognizable that ended up doing things as well, or some of your favorite bands you guys hit the road with during that time. I can mention a bunch of bands that I'm not sure if they're around anymore. Um, sure. One band from Chicago that signed to Victory Records that isn't around anymore, Spittlefield. We toured at them a lot. Armor for Sleep yep. from New Jersey. We toured at them a lot. Them. Yep. Rufio was a band we toured with. Um, God, I'm going to miss so many. I'm going to I'm gonna miss a ton of bands. The early November, a lot of like a lot of drive through records bands. Drive through records was big at the time. That was Dude, the big. That was the biggest thing. Like everybody wanted to be on drive through records. Dude, it was it was drive through tooth and nail. Tooth uh, and there nail. Was, there was yeah, it was like four or five that were just yeah. Yeah, being Ju- being Jewish and the rest of my band having no real religious affiliation, there wasn't enough Christ in our band for tooth and nail, unfortunately. But um, <laughs> I know that's actually the reason uh, we actually had to talk with them. And I was like, I can't do it, man. But the, mm. uh, a, a friend of ours or friends of ours called house of fools. Uh, they yeah. were signed to drive through out of North Carolina. And we were like, dude, you got signed to drive through. Fuck. How? Yeah, that was the biggest thing. Out. We got an offer. The only, so I'll tell you how we ended up. We ended up having, um, uh, so, so, so we had like, up until when we started making what became Take This to Your Grave, we had recorded some a pretty shitty album called Evening Out with Your Girlfriend. Any Fall Out Boy fan that thinks that's like good is like, that's so cool. I love it. It's like the demo. It's not good. I'm sorry. Unequivocally, it's a bad album. But enjoy it. You know, like it's your right. It's, it's America the free, the home of the free and the brave. <laughs> enjoy your album, enjoy your terrible album. So we made that. It wasn't very good. We hadn't like figured out like really how to write Fall Out Boy songs yet. We had a bad demo, but good enough, like put together well enough that like in the Chicago scene, we were like, oh, these guys at least like can record stuff and write songs and they can kind of have it together. I think we had, it was a little more kind of veneer than there was depth at that point, in my opinion. And then we had figured out what we wanted to write, which is basically, and I've talked to Chris Connolly from Saves a Day about this. It was like, we just wanted to make our own version of Through Being Cool, because that was like, and it still is a really great record. And it was like our own version of that, our own version of like Lifetime's Jersey, Jersey's Best Dancers. It's our our, our ode to the descendants. It's every, they were like, let's just... To do all that. Maybe maybe that's that's what we love. Let's just figure out how we can do our version of that. And we had a really nice, you can call him like an angel investor friend in Chicago who I think um had gotten some some money when one of his parents passed away and he was he was being really kind of magnanimous and, and giving and lending oh, wow. local bands money to go record. And so he gave us 
um, a few thousand dollars, and we went to Smart Studios in Madison, Wisconsin with Sean O'Keefe. Smart Studios, for anyone that doesn't know, that was Butch Vig from Garbage's. That was his studio where he made Nevermind and he made Siamese Dream. And so it's like a really amazing, it's the nicest studio we'd ever been to. You know, other, other than, you know, it's a real studio and with real <laughs> artifacts in it. You know, it's incredible. I mean, like Kurt Cobain's microphone, you know, in the basement, all sorts of, you know, platinum records in the wall. We're like, oh my God, real, you know, everything. Neve consoles, the whole fucking. We made it. Yeah. I mean, that felt incredible. I mean, we were still sleeping on like, the floor of some girl that somebody in the band was like sort of half dating during the yeah. evening. But during oh, yeah. the day we were just at this beautiful studio and um, <clears throat> we recorded like three to four songs that ended up on take this to your grave. And they were just like galaxies better than anything we'd ever made. And that's partly, you know, partly due to the help of Sean O'Keefe who was like up and coming mm-hmm. and really talented, uh, great producer. Um, and uh, those songs got the attention of, uh, Crush Management, who still manages us to this day. Jonathan, um, right? Uh, J- yeah, Jonathan Daniel, Bob McGlynn. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dustin Adams. I know those guys. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, they're yeah. awesome. Um, yeah. And they were still figuring out their thing at the time. You know, I think, uh, who was their biggest? Man, I'll, I'll have to figure out who their, I have to think who their biggest act was at the time. But it's an, it's an act that... Uh, Oh my God, my brain is is, is totally shitting out. I mean, it it right wasn't now. Green Day yet. It wasn't no, Panic. no. Green Day was no. Panic didn't even exist. Green Day right. was was a was a shit's chance in hell they would ever get a, a band like Green Day at that time. Um, yeah, I, I my my brain isn't working, but it's 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 a it's a band where at the time we we're like these these are the this is the biggest thing ever, and now like no one knows who they are. But <coughs> excuse me, sorry, getting over a cold already. Um, beginning a tour, not COVID. Yeah. I got tested, but anyway. <laughs> So they took us on. They came out and saw us perform at Madison, University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I think it was one of those, like, we were one of those bands where, like, you had to see us to believe us. You had to see, like, the fervent response from the crowd that we would get. Because we were packing these small clubs in the Midwest and starting to do it kind of on the East Coast and some other places. So there was a little buzz in that regard. But, you know, the proof was there. You just had to go see it. And they were convinced there. They started managing us. And then, like I said, from there, we had a really tough time finding a label that was interested. We talked to a few indies. Victory did send us a contract. It was a horrible contract. Mm. Uh, you know, um, we said no <laughs> to yeah, that one. That so, one yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't know how well known it is about those those deals that Victory used to send out, but they were not advantageous to the artists. Um, sure. And um, <clears throat> so we we turned that one down. And then... Uh, the only one that sent us that was, I mean, again, there weren't a lot, but Fueled by Ramen was the only one that was like, that sent us a cool deal that we liked them partly because, you know, half the label is owned by somebody in an actual band, you know, Vinny from Lesson Jake. And, um, they at the time had this kind of thing going with Island Def Jam where basically if like you, 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 you sign to Fueled by Ramen, if your record does really well you'll get upstream to island. to island. Yeah. And if it doesn't, you're on Fueled by Ramen. You have like, you can make another record. You have a label. Either way, you have a label behind you to help you make music and help you kind of pursue your your potential career as a musician. And so we did that and we gave them like, what was half of Take This to Your Grave? And they're like, awesome, here's money. Go do the rest. 
and uh, we did the rest and and you know that kind of kicked things off and when we started touring on this and that record that was at a time when like you would like really pay attention to sound scan and like our sound scans were going up every week we were getting our reports every week we're like oh my god we're selling a thousand a week two thousand a week three thousand a week five thousand a week so people were clearly buying the records the shows were getting bigger and bigger and bigger and um and then island took us <laughs> you know after that yeah and that's that's how we got there um and then you know yeah so that's how we ended up there that, that wasn't the end of the journey but that was the beginning of the kind of like i was i was gonna big, say like yeah there's all that lead up there's the other bands you were in there's like all these other iterations the hardcore the punk scene and then like the, the, then there's still like you start fallout boy you have to go do all these tours you're doing a college date you're building a fan base you're sleeping on fucking llama shit floors and then you finally get to the place where you Signed to Field by Ramen, and then you get upstreamed into Island, and it's like, okay, now we're at the beginning of the race. Yeah, it's like starting over. It's starting over. It's 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 going from the amateur. It's like amateur to pro am. You know, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, it's really what it is. And so you're starting over. You're like, wow, I did all that. Am I done? No, you're starting over again. But you're in the next level. You get to the next level. You're like, oh god damn it. Yeah, now yeah. you're in the one percenters. Now you're in the one percenters. Well, the opportunity, the opportunity to be there. It really that's because a lot of people at least at the time, could get record deals, you know? It wasn't, like, the hardest thing in the world. It's not easy, but it wasn't getting the hardest a, thing in yeah, the world. Yeah, but getting a record deal wasn't hard then. What selling records was, selling physical product out of yeah. record shops and having yes. your sound scan go up and putting actual hard fucking tickets on the board when you play a show, that was hard. That was it hard. It was really, really hard. And we're still, even after getting to Island, we're still at this place where the industry did not believe in us, but the kids believed in us. So we had what mattered. We had the people that came and bought tickets and bought records and supported. Where there's and like, honey, there's bees, man. You just you get the fans first. The rest follows. It was the few people like um, Bob and JD at Crush and like Rob Stevenson, who was our A&R at Island, who was his, he's on to other pastures. But it's those people like like that that like saw what was really happening, that knew that there was something brewing. Um, but everyone else in the industry was like, these guys, fuck these guys who fucking cares. And it was most evident, most evident. So 2005, we, uh, it was our second shot at the warp tour and we were doing the whole warp tour and it was us and my chemical romance. And then a bunch of other groups that were big, seemed seemingly bigger than us, but we we're put on the main stage and Weirdly enough, both of our major label records hit around the same time on that. But I think there's uh, their first, our first single was, was Sugar, We're Going Down. There's is I Believe I'm Not Okay. And you could see, I, I know what happened for us. I'm pretty sure it's the same thing for them because we became very thick as thieves over this kind of like overnight sort of success. You could, that it seemed, that it seemed. Um, we started Warp Tour day one or day two. We're on the main stage. We're like two, 3,000 people watching us, which is great. Sugar, we're going down hits and becomes like this instant hit. Day three, the entire crowd watching us, like the entire park watching us. And then it became evident from there on out, the entire draw for Warped Tour 2005 was Fall Boy, My Chemical Romance. And Kevin Lyman um, tested this one day. He just tested and he put us on the main stage I, I, can't, I don't remember at what um, what location, but at like 10 and 11 in the morning, like the first two slots, the entire crowd, you know, the park filled up, watched both of us, 
and left, and the crowd, and the and the, and the warp tour and the park were empty for the rest of the day. We were never oh. put on that early again. And I do think he was seeing. He was like, "Is this real, or is this a bunch of horseshit?" And he's like, "Okay, this is real. We can't, we can't put, we can't have them. We have to have them close out the tour every yeah, day." Yeah, these poor fucking vendors, <laughs> these poor <laughs> other bands. <laughs> yeah, they're like, yeah, fuck. The, yeah, I mean, yeah, they couldn't sell. They, yeah, they were. No one was making money that day. So yeah, they were fucking. Um, the the hot dogs got cold. <laughs> Um, but, uh, dude, so Kevin's actually an upcoming guest. Funny enough. Oh, nice. Tell him I say hi. I'm not, that wasn't me. I'm not, I'm not saying anything. I'm not slagging on the guy that, that, that's just, he was doing, he was doing a science experiment and he got results. He yielded results. As you do when you're a promoter, you're like, mm-hmm. is this a thing or is it not a thing? I mean, I mean, it, I mean, it was worth checking, man. Cause we were not tried and true entities at that time. We were just bubbling. So, right. Right. Um, dude, First of all, I'm sure we could you could keep going down this road and tell me the entire 20 year story, but there's other shit I actually wanted to get to. I took some other Please. notes that I find really, really interesting. Um, first of all, I don't know if that has anything to do with touring for all these years and wearing a guitar on my back, but I also have been having serious back problems. Let's talk about back problems. I could talk about that for the rest Dude, of the podcast. I, I, yeah, <laughs> let, 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 yeah, maybe not the entire time, but I, I, I last year was walking to my house during during lockdown from grocery shopping and I was taking like a couple steps up some stairs and my like L4 L5 I just heard a pop I heard Ooh, it was like it was like I know the I know the oh I know that and, well and I dropped to the ground my legs gave out <laughs> dropped to the ground and I I've never felt I mean I've felt pain before I've broken bones I've split my head open many times this was on some other level that you can't explain to somebody unless they feel this. Yes. I, I screamed and I couldn't help but scream because the pain was so severe. Uh, and I had to, I had to army crawl up two flights of stairs to get into my place. I crawled in and I basically called like an emergency chiropractor and nine one one. And like, I couldn't get off the floor for hours. They had to come lift me off the floor in my own place. Um, cause I was, I, couldn't, I, couldn't stand. That sounds about right. I'm sorry that happened, man. That sucks. But I mean, I was going to ask you like, so, so what, what's, what's been going on with you? Is it similar? Well, you want to know when I got my first back surgery was when I was 17. Oh, wow. So I have degenerative disc disease and now I'm at the point where I have arthritis in my back. Um, I'm on a celebrate. I take, have to take Celebrex daily right now on this tour. It's an arth, it's an arthritic medication. Uh, So to be in my like late thirties and be like, I have arthritis is not something I'm excited about, but it is what it is. But yeah, man, I've had two partial discectomy surgeries. I avoided a third one with a stem cell injection, which did save me for about four or five years. And then recently during this pandemic, um, and I've been working out really safely with a phenomenal trainer who really is uh, the best version of a Nazi about form, not about uh, hate. <laughs> she's a Nazi about form. She's wonderful. So she, acceptable so, so, reference. Acceptable, acceptable reference. Nazi <laughs> reference, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so if, if anything, I found out with this most recent injury that the working out stopped me from getting hurt sooner because my, my back muscles were so strong. But um, one of my L4, L5 discs is now so thin and pulverized, it's basically not there. So now I have vertebrae grinding on vertebrae currently that's what i'm doing this tour with so you know like um when we were going through rehearsal we were going through and like really you know um going through every beat of what's going to happen 
And at one point, we're going to come out and take a photo with the crowd. And my three guys, my banner bending down. I'm like, that's not going to happen. I just have to stand up. I can't bend down. I can't let my bones grind right now. As fun as that sounds, it sounds like a cool skate. The bone grind sounds like a cool skate trick. It's a terrible human trick. So um, I can't do that. Um, Yeah, man. And, you know, I've had three recently – three cortisone shots leading up to this um, tour. Oh. They st- kind of stopped working after the third one. And so, yeah, now I just have like, you know, my, I'm, I'm going to, when I get home, I'll talk more to my spine doctors. I have a great, I have a team. I have a spine doctor team. But yeah, so I know that stuff really well, man. That, that pain is, it is truly debilitating. You can get fully stuck and the you don't realize how, um, I mean, logically it makes sense that your back and your your core and all that, they're the center of but your, until of your until you are yeah. laid up with the nerve being pinched by the two vertebrae yeah and you cannot move your entire body because of this one little nerve the a nerve pain is horrible you don't re- said debilitating it is when your back isn't working properly the rest of your body can't do anything like nothing's working that's a big thing people don't understand too like when you have a herniated disc so it's like you know you have your discs in between your vertebrae and what that means is like your disc is like popped out of the sack and it's like just back you know falls backwards and starts just like hitting the nerve and the uh, the biggest part of the pain is less about the back and more about the nerve pain that often like if it's in your l4 l5 which is your lower back um which i again those are where all my my lower discs are all my diseased discs so i know that really well it just it hits your sciatic nerve which shoots shoots down your leg for me it's my right leg um and it's you know i have i have my leg hurts like right now even i've my right hip and my right knee are definitely like a little wacky. Um, it's honestly not as bad as it's been, but when that pain is really bad, if you're let's say you're walking, you can't you can't step more than I'm not even kidding inch half an inch at a time. The pain is brutal. There's no position in which you can be in for relief, and it is like when doctors go like on a scale of one to ten. With that one, you're like. 11, 12, 15, I don't know. This is excruciating. Truly yeah, I not was, high. I, I, yeah. I was a folded chair. I mm. I was I, I walked with my hands touching my toes with a back brace on inches at a time for three months last year just to go to the bathroom and do things. Like I, I couldn't actually stand upright. I was folded while I walked. That um, sucks. And I was I just remember being like, no, it's fine. But I remember thinking, what the fuck? And so when I finally got the chance to go see some doctors, they were like, so you played guitar. 250 nights a year for 10 years on stage. I'm like, yeah. They're like, and I lean to the right, you know, and I'm like, oh, they're like, oh yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. Just all that weight and leaning and just not exercising properly. So anyway, yeah, I, I, I heard that you had something similar. I was like, dude, ah, somebody who gets it like that is just brutal. Where are you at in your recovery process with it right now? I mean, I've, I've had some x-rays done and some scans and they basically just said, this is what happened. It, it got worn thin. The sciatic nerve got pinched with the two vertebrae. Um, and that the nerve pain is that like, you just got to build some strength in your back. Like that, they, I don't have any disease. They think it was just a matter of like wear and tear of years and years and years. Sure. And I just got to build some strength back up. But, uh, um, it also just came off the back of me sitting for 15 hours a day back and forth, on my, back and on my, on my laptop, uh, during COVID. Like I, you know, we're all in lockdown. I'm just sitting there not exercising. So yeah, the sitting, you have to get up and you have to move stretching, getting like, I mean, I have, you know, I leave for this tour. My bag is like 60 pounds, my check bag. 
And like I would say 15 of that is like different rollers and all sorts of things to like loosen up the muscles and get blood flowing. And so, yeah, man, I know it really well. So so, so do they think you can re- you can make a recovery without invasive surgery or anything like that? I don't know. I, I still need to go do like an actual um, uh, MRI. MRI and oh, uh, they'll man. tell me after that. That's my nightmare. I'm I'm full on claustrophobia, so I hate. I've MRIs are terrible. You you want to know what? That's why I haven't done it. I went in twice, yeah. and ten minutes before I was supposed to actually go in, like one time they canceled on me because of some insurance thing, and the second time I was like, you know what? I don't feel like being in a tube for the next hour today. I'm out of here. You know what I recommend? You know what I recommend truly, and I'm not pushing drugs. I would never push drugs, but I would recommend something like a, they can prescribe you a Valium. Or even a beta blocker, which is it will just bring your anxiety down. But I mean, I'm telling you, man. You know, I um, I get very vasovagal, meaning like I can't handle shots, I can't handle seeing my own blood. I get very immediately just like turn sheet white and pass out. So when I was getting these cortisone shots recently, after the first one, they just did it. They like did local anesthesia just to the area, and then they just put the needle in, and like one. Uh, the space on my right side is like I don't know, I don't know how to how to do this in in, cir- in circumference. But let's say of an inch, and you know we're just hitting the nerve while they're shooting the cortisone, and I'm getting sick. I feel terrible. I can feel everything. So for the second one, I got Valium, and really it helped. I like I just was able to not have not get anxious, not get sick. I was able to sit through it, and I think um, when I learned that. I learned that trick because I recently got a vasectomy. <laughs> and, there you go. Okay. Um, they gave me Valium to get through the vasectomy. Uh, I mean, like, um, and honestly, I couldn't. I was like, you can cut cut the whole thing off. I don't care. <laughs> I feel great. Cut but it all off. Let's just yeah. And I used to get prescribed Valium a long time ago, early touring actually um, with Fall Out Boy, because I would have extreme panic attacks about like being away from home. This like illogical idea that I would never come home again. That I would just be stuck in this van forever. And it was like, I couldn't calm down. So I'd have to start taking Valium. Um, and, uh, anyway, Valium's helpful in certain situations. I would not recommend abusing it, but it's, um, but like, again, you know, I'm sure you could talk to a, talk to your doctor and be like, Hey, listen, I'm claustrophobic. Is there anything you can give me just so I can take, so I can get this MRI? Cause it's important. You get it. It's important. I mean, do you, for the last to figure out what was happening fully with my back, I got an X-ray, an MRI, and a, something called a SPECT scan, where they like inject you with a dye, and you wait an hour, and you sit in this thing, and it does like a full like bone scan on you. It's, yeah, super fun, dude. Well, <laughs> no, I mean, I'll, I'll take all that to heart. I mean, I, I got to do something. Yeah, I've been walking around for the past, you know, eleven months, wondering, shit, I'm about to hit fucking ground zero again. Um, do it before it gets worse, man. That's all I say. That's all I can recommend. Yeah. Good advice. Good advice. Um, thanks, dude. Appreciate that. So, of course. Uh, one other thing. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff I want to talk about, but uh, comic books. What's mm-hmm. what's going on there? Um, yeah, we can talk comics. So recently, I did um, with Rick uh, with uh, Rick Remender. We co-wrote a uh, one shot for uh, a big like Anthrax book. That came out on Z2. So everybody that wrote a story for that, Grant Morrison's in there. Posehn wrote a story. Um, I think Rob Zombie wrote a story in that thing. Um, it, it was all uh, a song from uh, Among the Living. Um, so um, so we did NFL for that. 
And uh, we did a, a pretty cool, dark, fucked up, funny story for that. And then right now I'm in the midst of, I don't know if I can say, I'll, I'll just, I won't say everything about it, but I'll say I'm, I'm doing a book. But Brian Posehn and I are writing, writing a, a, a book, like a five, right now five issues of something for heavy metal, uh, uh, heavy metal magazine. Oh, dude, and, that's uh, rad. It's really cool. I don't want to spoil too much because I don't know how much heavy metal would want me to, <laughs> I don't even know if they want me to say that, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, but that will will be coming out, and it's uh, it's really 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 good. We have a great team. Uh, Scott Koblish, who does Deadpool, is doing that. Uh, drew it, you know, it looks awesome. Um, it's really good. And then um, there's some other stuff. Brian and I are working on another thing. Uh, we, we've broken. I can't, we've broken all of it. We're just figuring out what artist to get, what publisher to take it to. So. Yeah, I guess I'm doing comics. <laughs> Dude, man. You know what? It's like comics are coming back, man. My buddy Drew DeCaro, I don't know if you know Drew, but he's like the, mm-hmm. the guitarist for Miguel, producer mm-hmm. guy. He, mm-hmm. He's he's started doing his own comics, and another buddy of mine started one. And yeah, I love it, man. I love this coming. I, I used to collect like all the early X Men. I remember having the first issue of Wolverine in a in a sleeve, and I never took it out. And it's somewhere in storage. Uh, I don't know if it's worth Dude. anything. It's probably like baseball cards. Probably doesn't. First Wolverine, now. first Wolverine, depending on which cover is, is the in condition is worth. It's it's not nothing. Um, yeah, man. I, I mean, I've always loved comics. I've always read them, uh, and I'm pretty deep into them. Uh, you know, some of my good buddies, you know, uh, Rick Remender, who's you know a beast, uh, Jerry Duggan. Um, you know, some of these guys, you know, who write books and um, make cool stuff. Lilo Ridge, um, just all these great. Writers and artists and colorists and stuff, we we become close friends. And then you know, <clears throat> Brian writes Brian and Jerry write Dead, uh, Deadpool together. So, uh, and the drummer of Fall Boy, he doesn't make comics, but Andy's a huge comic guy. So him and I always talk comics. So I don't know, they've always been in my life and around me. And then you know, like I said, I have friends that make them for real. And honestly, I have to give a lot of credit. And um, do appreciation to to Rick Remender, who kind of pushed me into it. I mean, he's the reason I wouldn't have written that Anthrax one shot with with him if he didn't ask me to do it. So, um, and then you know, same to Brian. Um, you know, when I pitched my idea for this comic to Heavy Metal, um, they're like, "Awesome, this is great!" And it was like a really, it was a this idea had been sitting on for forever, really thin. But like, I knew what I kind of wanted to do. They're like, cool, let's do it. Start outlining it. I'm like, I'm going to see if Brian wants to do this with me. Partly to make it easier, but partly because it'd be fun. Like, him and I are working, Brian and I are working on a, I won't say too much about it, but a, a something, uh, a, a TV show that's in development. And so him and I have, like, a, a really, like, awesome, I mean, we have a great friendship, but a great working relationship as well. So he brings me something, we work on it. I bring him something. We work on it. We just we're working on a bunch of stuff together. So it made sense because it was like a comedy. It's like a horror comedy story. And I was like, well, he loves horror. He is comedy. I should do this with him. We're just we're fast together. So well, he's such a genius, man. He's such a genius. genius. I I, I absolutely love that guy. I love that whole crew that he's always run with me. He surrounds himself with some of my favorite comics, man. He's just he's just awesome. They just happened. His best friends just happened to be some of the funniest, most influential people in comedy, and smart, and, and legitimately smart and cool. With like on the right side of history, on the right side of politics, just good fucking people. Uh, dude, like I said, I saw that show where Patton Oswalt. It's it's a famous show at the, at the Forty Watt in Athens, and he he ranted 
for about four to six hours. I don't remember. People were still there at three in the morning, and Patton just refused to get off, and he was riffing. There was no that. content. That's, and that's, I, that's Patton, man. Yeah, I stood great. there the entire fucking time, and I just kept ordering beers. They were just like, I guess we're still serving. And I, I remember just standing there being like, I've been here for five hours listening to Patton Oswalt rant, and I cannot get enough. Just keep going, dude. Like, yeah, he's fucking funny and smart, and you want to hear what he has to say. That's why he is who he is and where he is, man. Dude, you know? have, have you ever tried stand up? Speaking of which, I feel like you would you would do something in that space. I get I would get you know I, so I'm you know in the TV side I've I've in the past like six plus years I've gotten into I, my friend Brandon Dermer who's a writer director. He pushed me into to working in TV. I was like, it's not my lane. I'm staying out of that lane. My lane's music. He's like, no, I think you should do this. And he pushes me into it, and it kind of worked. And so I've been writing. Um, comedy so i like that I, I feel more comfortable writing jokes and working on comedy and story and character than i do getting on stage you know it's weird man i've been performing for 20 years and sure i can get on stage and pretend to be the, the guy that people want me to be and i am that guy to a degree but i'm not the front man i don't talk on a microphone if anything i would love it if there was like a white sheet in front of me the whole time just hiding me so the idea of going on stage and doing stand-up sure I guess I'm witty and I could, you know, and I guess I could, sure, could I write a set? Maybe. Would it be any good? I don't think so. It feels disingenuous, especially when some of my friends are guys like Brian and Patton who like, and, and Blaine Capach and these guys that have been like fucking doing it forever. It feels so mean to be like, I can do it too, guys. You know, like, no, it's nice enough that like all of them are so supportive and wonderful and and allow me into their world as a, as a writer um, and, and give me some, some respect in that way. Cause I don't think I deserve it, but I appreciate it a great deal. And, um, I defer to get to, to folks like that all the time, but now I, I'd rather go watch them do what, what they've been, you know, they give a shit about the craft. They've been doing it for decades. I feel like if I showed up, it's like, <clears throat> I, I won't, I won't say who, but there's a certain famous guitar pop musician that tried doing stand up some years ago. Um, and, uh, He's very full of himself, and he thought he was really funny, and he could just do it. And I'll be honest, as a comedy fan, and I've talked to other real stand-ups, they're really bummed that that happened because it just feels weird and wrong. And like, oh, I'm just – I'm so charismatic and perfect. I could go up and do anything. And it's like, dude, you didn't put in the 10,000-plus hours of work to get up there and do it. You're, you're not self-effacing. You don't throw yourself under the bus. You're just cocky. And like, it just doesn't feel right. But I appreciate you saying that. That, that no, no. I mean, well, you're nat yeah. you're naturally funny, dude, and you like. I can tell you like comedy, so that I mean, oh, that, I that's why I asked. But, but, dude, I, it's it's funny. I was just talking to uh, the flip side of that coin. I was, I was just talking to a guy uh, named David Duchovny, and. David we were just, Duchovny, and, and he's putting, but yeah, but he's putting out a music, you know, he's been making music and I just, yeah. but he was very aware of that. He's like, look, he's like, I realize I'm the actor guy who's now doing music and like, I'm like, you know, Kevin Bacon or Kevin Costner. And like, we, he's like, I realize I'm not that guy. I just want to get up there. I just want to play. I want the first two rows of people to know a couple of the songs and I'm fucking happy. And then I'll be good. I love and, hearing and, that. That doesn't see as a on the musician side. I'm like, I don't feel that feels genuine. I think as long as you have awareness about it, be aware. That's what I'm saying is he was aware. <laughs> so like, I feel like if I ever went to go do stand up comedy and my comedian friends were like, what the fuck are you doing? I'd be like, look, I know. 
that I'm going to be terrible. I'm not, I just want to do it for me. You know, like, like, don't worry about it. I'm not trying to encroach on the, on the, uh, on the whole scene. I'm just, I'm just I, doing it for me. You know, Brian included me in like a star Wars, like May the 4th, like comedy special that he, he did this past May. And that I'm fine with. If, if they are including me, they like are asking me, Hey, come do this thing. We want you there. That's okay. I, I just, man, I still feel like a fraud and I've been in, in, in the TV kind of comedy writing world for not as long as everybody, all my friends, but you know, again, like over five years and I'm, I've, I've found my footing and I feel confident in that world. But I still feel like a fucking fraud that should not be there. I feel like a fraud in music. I feel like I've, I have imposter syndrome in spades, but like, that's something where I'm like, I just don't have the itch to do it. So it's not fair. Like, I've always been writing my whole life, but for myself. I've always just written for myself. I've never written for other people. Like, r- like r- writing in a journal, writing stories on my computer, whatever it is. Like, I've always written because I like to do it. But I never thought, like, oh, I should go do that as a job. So, therefore, it feels at least something I've built an, an, an aptitude towards, you know, or I have an aptitude for. Stand-up is something I love. I love watching. I care about it. And I care about comedy so much that I, I'm like, Joe, don't go do that. You care about it too much. Don't take a giant dump on it for yourself or for anybody else. Dude, yeah, it's true. Um, and back to your other point, <laughs> forever the interloper. That's how I feel on this planet. Yeah. It's like, I'm just I'm just coming in and doing whatever. And I, Yeah, the, the fraud syndrome is absolutely real. You know, it's fake it till you make it, but do you ever really make it? Like, you know, you get up there, you're like, I guess I'm the professional people look up to. Like, how is this possible? You're like, I'm the pro? Okay. Yeah, it's like, if you knew me, you'd be very bummed out that I'm the person with the thing that you wish you could do. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'm working, on a, I'm working on a book right now, and my editor was like, you should write a little bit about how you're how going into this other career of TV writing. So I'm trying to figure out this chapter, and, and part of it is talking about, like, my imposter syndrome and talking about how like I don't feel like I'm capable to do any of these things and I shouldn't be here. And part of that has to do with it's this weird thing where, you know, I only have a high school diploma. My dad is a cardiologist. So he went to lots of school. He went to kindergarten. He went to all, for all the elementary school. He did high school. He went to college. He went to graduate school. He went to medical school. I, I just have a high school diploma. And then like, you know, Okay, so I learned how to play guitar from, like, a guy's biker dad in a garage. Okay, cool. Well, my other buddy, Brendan Small, who created that show Metalocalypse, he went to Berkeley School of Music and is, like, a shred. And he's not a dick about it. He's awesome. He's so cool. But, like, I'm like, I don't have a guitar degree. I have no degrees. I am not official at anything. And yet, like, everyone is letting me do this stuff. Like, now, I mean, it's also the company I keep. I definitely like to surround myself with other smart talented people so it's not just me coming into a room but for some reason people keep letting me come into a room um and and i go why <laughs> why are you doing this yeah well i mean l- lucky lucky for you and i like our <laughs> imposter our imposter syndromes don't have any uh like dangerous goals like right fine okay music no. and tv but i never woke up one morning and went I think I'm going to try being a neurosurgeon tomorrow i'm just going to show up somewhere and have my friend come over and i'm going to cut his fucking back open and be like Let's try it. Like that Dr. De- like that Dr. Death story. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. God. I mean, I yeah. mean, I would say our, our goals are not that hefty, which is good. It's probably not dangerous to society, which is good. I want to yeah, dude, I just want to make I, you know, on the music side, I would like to play guitar and make 
music that people like and make them happy and make myself happy, make both of us happy at the same time. And on the TV or any other writing ventures, I really just want to make myself laugh and then hopefully make other people laugh and also feel some things, you know, and feel like not alone. That's like a big, man, I feel alone all the time. So I really am always reaching out. Like you talking about your back stuff. I'm like, oh, cool. Thank you for saying that. It's I feel a little less alone when I hear somebody else going through the same problems I am. And that's kind of the goal for, you know, is to be able to kind of like make human connections and make people laugh and feel good. And also to get paid to do it is, is a wonderful perk. Though, though, though I would say going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, in starting playing music, it was never to make money. It was, it was, it was always, it was, to, it was yeah. to connect with people and not feel alone. I mean, that, that, honestly, I made music so that I could make myself and other people feel good and be surrounded by people who had that same feeling at that same moment. And if I could yeah. do it 24 seven, that's what I was trying to do. Yeah. Dude, make, play a guitar and be around your friends. Like that was it. And even with attempting to work as a writer, um, it, it is really at the end of the day, um, for self, it's, it's, it's masturbatory. It's for self pleasure, but it's also like, I honestly, and I was at the beginning doing everything on spec, all speculative for free. And I did it cause I wanted to, cause I like, was like, this is fun and I love it. And I got like, I rushed from like cracking stories and writing good jokes and making other people laugh and other people feel good. And I'm like, Oh, this is awesome. And then one day, you know, someone's like, I'll pay you to do it. And I'm like, Oh, you can get, Oh, right. Of course. Everyone, this is why everyone does this for money. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. You can, this can be lucrative. Oh, wow. That's what, that's, but that's, but that's when this stuff that you love, whether it's music or writing or whatever it is, it can, st- becomes a job and it starts to suck some of the, the fun out of it is when it becomes a job. Um, well, yeah, especially, kind of- especially when you're in a fucking band, your band members are like, well, how much money do we make tonight? How much are we splitting up or who's getting this much? And how much do we owe for hotels and crew? And it's like, it's like, oh, this is a job. Holy yeah, Christ. It becomes a job and it starts to feel corporate and all that stuff. I mean, one thing that I would recommend to any band, regardless of who does what creative heavy lifting at all, is to split everything equally. That keeps hundred percent, hundred percent. Our manager sat us down. 2003 and he goes i'll tell you what guys you're about to hit the road you're playing 200 dates this year and you're writing the songs together even though this guy's writing more of the lyrics than anybody else in the room here my advice split everything down the middle and you'll last a long time and we yeah. all looked at each other like what well what if i'm a better at this and he's like well, he I shut us more. down yeah yeah he shut us down he's like shut the fuck up trust me no, you don't want to be in the same band. and Yeah, you don't want to be in the same band and like one person lives in the mansion and the other person is struggling to pay their rent, but you're still in the the big band together. It doesn't make any sense. People are just going to fight and it's just going to break the thing up. M- people fight about money all the time. So why not take that factor out of the equation, you know, and you're going to fight about other stuff. You know, I was talking to somebody, one of the guys from the amazing defunct, but you know, mostly defunct or at least on ice New York noise band Chavez. And he, he brought up he brought up to me that being in a band is is an unholy alliance. It's people that necessar- not necessarily should be hanging out with each other, but they all have this common goal. We want to do a band, and we want to play in front of people, and we want to have fun and feel that. And I guess we all have this similar goal. You know, we may be very different people, but we have this one goal. And so you are, if you're in the band long enough, you're gonna fucking fight, and you're gonna disagree, and you're gonna get along. Mm-hmm. But you can work through all the other stuff. But if it's money, that's very impossible to work through. 
and unless you're unless unless there isn't anything any argument you're all getting the same amount of money you can't fight about that you know yeah yeah you can you can be you know mo- lots of different people in a band but if your core values don't meet it's probably not going to work no no <clears throat> yep well dude i know you got a lot to do today man i really appreciate you taking the time it's been pl- a pleasure and also like just hearing somebody with the same back pain and giving some advice yeah. made me feel better dude you should get 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 my contact info and i will anytime you have a question about back stuff I can give you my perspective if you want it. Uh, dude, I, I would love it because nobody has been able to relate to me until this conversation. Everybody else is like, really? What happened to you? I'm like, I can't explain this pain. Yeah, man. I'm happy to give you. And also I have, if you need another doctors, all that stuff. Who's? Oh my goodness. My children are trying to FaceTime me right now. Oh my That's God. great. It's per, is, can, you, can you hear the FaceTime noise? In the, in, no, no. Oh, that's good. All Goodness good. Gracious. And we, we can well, edit it out if, if it was there anyway. No edit big. it in. Make it big. Make this a <laughs> big closing, big closing <laughs> moment. Yeah. yeah, that's how it ends. <laughs> like, there's actually no warning. You're like mid sentence and there's just a FaceTime <laughs> ring. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm hearing right now while we're talking. <laughs> well, I'm going to go. I guess I'll go FaceTime my kids, then go uh, rehearse for this rock and roll show tomorrow. Dude, well, have a fucking great tour. And uh, when are you guys in LA? Is it soon? It's in September the 3rd. Well, maybe I'll try and make it out. That'd be great. It'd be great to have you. Let me know, man. Yeah, I'll just, you know, I'll be in the front row just with my back pain, with my back brace on. Yeah, wear your back brace on. Take your shirt off because you know how I like <laughs> it. And let's just do this, man. Let's get this going. Oh, good God. All right, dude. Well, <laughs> have a great first show, man. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Later, bro. Later, bro. 